HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program has been brought to you by Cider Week New York City, happening November 6th through 15th, 2015. For more information, check out ciderweeknyc.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Slightly intimidated because I have Christine Hawney of, of Food Crimes, 0.0 production uh, on you know Food Republic, sitting across from me. And you came into the studio and you were already asking me questions about me. I'm like, how did she know that my wife worked for food? All these things. I'm like, okay, all right, I know what I'm up against. And I, I'm glad because, uh, you know... On my show, I, I, I dig a little bit, but not in, in the sense that food crimes really does. And I want to know what the structure of trying to put together a report that is so poignant and hopefully um, powerful enough to get shit done. Um, because I think the intent of a lot of what you do is, is to pass bills, amendments, uh, figure out how to right the wrong in the world. Um, where did that initially start in you? How did you want to, um, you know, when did you want to become an investigative reporter? Oh, that's a great question. I, I guess I've always wanted to be an investigative reporter, even when I was very, very young and um, wanted to be like a Barbara Walters or someone. I wanted to you know, follow in the steps of a Woodward and Bernstein. So there were always lots of questions. If we went to a restaurant, you know, and you're going to have, what do you want for dessert? It was, you know, a you know, a 10 point cross examination yeah. to the waitress. So it's, it's been a long history of yeah. asking a lot of questions. And, and do you need empirical evidence or because you're not an assumptive person, I'm assuming. Yes. No, I need a lot of empirical evidence. I came from uh, the New York times before this and then before that, the wall street journal. And I also uh, worked for the Washington post. So really to kind of survive and thrive in those organizations, you have to have a lot of empirical evidence also because a lot of things I've covered weren't kind of traditional 
news. And so if you're going to say, if you're going to write about something that's considered soft, like real estate, you have to have a ton of data and empirical evidence to show that there's a reason you should be on the front page. Yeah. Uh, let's skip over the soft stuff because the hard hitting <laughs> stuff is, you know, World Trade, World Trade Center attacks. Um, you were one of the first, if not first reporters sent by the Washington Post to cover that. Yes. Obviously, I want to know what that's like, but more so the outcome, because you've changed a lot for the air quality of that area of New York. Oh, thank you. Yes. Um, that was, you know, one uh, that's just kind of become part of me, that story. Um, that was one of the most formative reporting experiences I've had. And I was down there for two years with the firefighters and went down there every day with my corduroys and kind of tromping through debris and cleaning it off my shoes. Um, I still have those shoes. I don't know what we're going to do with them, but I haven't figured that out yet. So, um, yeah, so that was huge. That was one of the first things that I did that really kind of affected change and launched an investigation at the EPA. And what exactly did the EPA do to follow up from your story? Well, that's that really kind of triggered a lot of the um, studies that we had and kind of um, you know, there's like legislation. All of this kind of started from the early days. Uh, I think the the front page lead I had at the time was something like, "There's something about the air." Because you know, when you were down there, you know, I had asbestos um, and particles in my neck, and I was um, going to my dry cleaner every week, and all my clothes smelled like I was like a 90 year old smoker. And so there was something definitely about the air. Yeah. I mean, you've covered some lighter stuff, too, like the Royal Banquet. Um, yes. Y- you love baking, and sometimes, <laughs> you know, uh, try to find those inroads. But uh, food crimes, I mean, why that aspect of, of food? Uh, it actually started um, with a conversation I had. I was on maternity leave, and I started watching um, Parts Unknown and just thought it was this wonderful narrative and that why am I watching this? I haven't slept in months, but it was just really good storytelling. And so I met with a a friend at Sever at the time. He introduced me to 0.0. And we just started having a conversation and I found the people that were really, really smart and were asking me about if I were to come up with a series, what would it be? I'd read a McSweeney's article maybe 15 years ago where someone envisioned crimes in his head and what would those crimes be. And that is where we kind of, that was born of the idea of food crimes. It really was something that I thought about like rocking my son to sleep at night um, in his rocking chair. And it, it just, it started with that, but it's become so incredible because you realize how much crime and corruption happens in food and happens in our food supply. So I've just in the last week or so been trying to find out where does our milk come from? So just the, the carton of milk you pick up from your grocer after you come home after work. I mean, we're not talking about like the nice milk you get at your farmer's market, which we get on our Saturdays. But where does that come from? And that's not an easy question to answer. Yeah, I mean, there are so many or you think there are so many protocols and regulations for these things. But uh, episode one, the hunt for illegal seafood, um, it's kind of near and dear to my heart because I've worked in seafood for over a decade, um, you know done my time at Fulton Street Fish Market was here, been out at Hunts Point um, in Gloucester, Mass. And, you know, it's a fascinating thing because we think local sustainable, but all the things that are illegally important to this country affect us so adversely. Um, Why seafood as number one? 
seafood actually started from reporting out of New England. We were looking at the oyster th- um, oyster thieves on uh, the Cape, and I mean Gloucester. I, being from the Boston area, it's just really kind of has a special place for me. Um, in terms of specific seafood, you know, we learned that something like a third of our seafood supply is internet is illegal, and ninety percent of the fish we consume now is um, from international waters. It was something like fifty percent in nineteen ninety five. So it's changed drastically. So we just had an interest in the sea and seafood, and then it quickly became apparent that there was a whole heck of a lot to investigate. Yeah, I mean, $23 billion industry. I mean, black market industry at that. Yes. I mean, it's, it's kind of bonkers to see, you know, that much exchange. Well, what does it really hurt? I mean, it, it's seafood. It's a protein. I mean, it, it, it's something that we can eat. Or is there something worse about it that, you know, it, it's less superficial more ingrained in our society? Well, it hurts the local fishermen. So there's a small business owner who's affected. Um, we went out with the local fishermen from our farmer's market, and he um, he he's basically the last generation. He said it's kind of over for him. So it, it affects small business owners, but it does also affect the kind of food we're consuming. There have been a lot of concerns with, like, shrimp coming from Asia, from shrimp farms, and the contaminants in those um, shrimp. I mean, a lot of people I talk to who work in... Um, in inspections of fish will not eat shrimp at all and i think i've eaten shrimp once since i started reporting and i don't mean to be scared of shrimp but you but shrimp is in a bad place right now yeah i mean a lot of people will ask well this doesn't really affect me because i I don't buy from these sources but costco red lobster i mean this guy arnold benji's uh from south africa yeah was importing and selling to you know these inroads in in you know, our American society. So everyone was affected by this. Absolutely. Everyone is affected. You can think, oh, if I shop local and shop at my farmer's market, I'm not affected. But you're always inevitably affected. Um, One of the stories we did about uh, the peanut butter Corporation of America, the people who ate these peanut crackers who died, they had, um, they took, there was peanut butter crackers. A lot of them were given out at nursing homes or hospitals. You and I, we might not eat peanut butter crackers on a daily basis, but if we were in a nursing home or a hospital, that might, might be what we're given to eat. So, yeah, we're actually going to come back and talk about that PBG, uh, PBNG case because it's kind of fascinating how the trickle down of a CEO just mindlessly, you know, disregarding something uh, so big as a, you know, foodborne pathogen um, really has us scared about peanuts in this country. Uh, you've been listening to the food scene on Heritage Radio Network.org. We'll be right back. Hey, and welcome back to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network.org. I'm here with Christine Hawney of Food Crime. I feel like <laughs> it should have some kind of food crimes uh, on Food Republic by 0.0. Um, PB&J, something that seems so banal, something you know so safe and childlike, uh, ended up having this ripple effect in the U.S. in a way that really hadn't been seen uh, of what we assumed as like this very safe product. Um, Talk to me about this CEO and the disregard he had for 
allowing salmonella to infiltrate our peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Yeah, so Stuart Parnell was the um, head of the Peanut Corporation of America. He basically kind of inherited his father's business. He wasn't that excited about going into his father's business in the first place. You know, he liked flying. He likes, um, you know, being on his boat. But that was kind of the family business you get into. The way he ran Peanut Corporation of America was basically so filthy that when inspectors came in, there were kind of wrap droppings everywhere. Um, It just... Just a complete disgrace. Well, the result of that was nine people died. Those are confirmed deaths and that can be directly traced back to Peanut Corporation of America. I think more than 700 people were sick. And when you get sick by these cases, you have lifelong implications. It doesn't just go away in a week. Um, And then they had to recall nearly 4,000 products. I think it affected people in 47 states who got sick. Yeah, again, you know, the... Well, this doesn't really affect me. You know, I'm not in a nursing home. I'm not in daycare. But 47 states around the you know country, yes, yeah. it's it's so far reaching. Um, and I think that case was recently brought to trial or or kind of closed. Yes, it was. Um, he was just sentenced in um, just recently, and he was given. A, he's going to prison for the rest of his life, which is huge. Basically, if you commit crime in the food world up until now you're going to get away with it. And um, there's another gentleman I wrote about, uh, Jack DeCoster. He had filthy egg farms in Maine, Iowa. I mean, he's sickened people across the country. And he just got sentenced in April in Iowa. And it was still something like less than three months. And it's on appeal. So basically, Stuart Purnell is the first example of someone in America doing something that killed people related to food who's going to jail for it. Yeah, I mean, well, we spend, what, over $100 billion on foodborne related illnesses in this country. So, I mean, if you're talking from an economic uh, perspective, it's obviously a big deal. Um, When you're talking about it from a crime perspective, like you said, until now, these things were kind of a slap on the wrist. What changed and why? Well, I think the food, uh, the Peanut Corporation of America case was so huge that it was actually a turning point and helped trigger the passage of the Food Safety Modernization Act. There were, um, Stuart Parnell had to testify in Congress, and of course he pled the fifth, um, because things really turned around. People were really outraged. So there is finally a shift and a movement happening where um, if you hurt people, kill people with your food products, there will be punishment. And that's a lot of that has to do with the PCA case. Yeah, I mean, there really isn't a singular agency, though, that, you know, regulates that. And I guess that's part of the problem. Um, How are we refining that as, you know, a legislative judicious system? They're um, now finally giving the FDA a little more power to kind of involve, get involved with recalls and um, to have some control of this. But there's a ton of agencies, like, you know, with fish, that is really kind of, that's kind of handled by an offshoot of commerce. FDA handled the PCA case but they didn't have a heck of a lot of power to really kind of take care of these recalls. CDC has some involvement. I mean, it is spread out across the government. There is no real, you know, food czar saying, hey, I'm going to stop this in America. The DEC, the NOAA, I mean, all these acronyms that um, are trying to regulate, you know, can only get in and do so much. Yes, and then there's kind of rivalries between them. I mean, when we went in with uh, NOAA to do an inspection at the Fulton Fish Market, DEC had been there the week before, but you didn't get the sense there was a lot of coordination or communication happening. Yeah, and NOAA was the agency that came in and got uh, Benji's in his Hamptons estate. (laughs) Um, And and during that raid, he was kind of not defiant, but cocky about, you know, being apprehended. Oh, he still doesn't really 
really kind of take ownership of his actions. I mean, he lives in London. He's on Facebook. You know, he he has quite a nice life for someone who spent time in prison and nearly eradicated the South African rock lobster population. And was supposed to, you know, pay $20 million in restitution. I don't think yeah, more any than of it's been million. seen. Yeah, I mean, I think it's still going on and on. So um, there, and this was, you know, kind of years ago. The purple crocus flower. Uh, this is my favorite episode. Um, Thank you. Mad about saffron. Uh, and not just because Saffron King Baruch, who's one of my favorite spice traders in New York, is in it. But uh, the history behind, uh, you know, the global politics of saffron are fascinating. First, tell me what saffron is. Well, saffron is the world's most expensive spice, and um, it's uh, basically a spice that's at the core and base of so many um, national dishes, whether it's bouillabaisse or paella. Ninety uh, percent of the saffron that is produced in this world comes from Iran, which immediately creates a problem when you try to export it to the United States. So a lot of the saffron we consume comes through Spain and is then rebranded as Spanish saffron. But nobody in Spain is making as much saffron as they claim to be when it's actually coming from Iran. So it's this spice, this incredibly valuable spice that is completely um, caught up in foreign policy and the conflict with and all of the debates going on with Iran. Reaganomics. I mean, Reagan himself uh, really changed how we deal with Iran as far as embargoes and importing, exporting. Um, And I think it was during the Clinton era, 2000 to 2010, where we lifted that embargo. Did we see a flood of saffron? Was there bouillabaisse and paella at every corner of America? We did see there was an exception. And it's interesting. I think it started with the Clinton administration, but it was rolled out during the Bush years. So we did see people like Baruch who were able to bring in these spices from places like Iran. And, um, you know, Baruch is a wonderful example because his family's from Iran. His family helped get him some of the best quality uh, saffron that could then be served in Manhattan restaurants. So as he said, you know, we have like we kind of enhanced the the taste and flavors that people could get from all around the world. Yeah, I mean, I guess it doesn't seem silly, but to me, sometimes it does. You know, the reason we disallowed saffron in this country is because we didn't want to support terrorist groups. And, you know, you're obviously making a big leap saying, well, you know, how does saffron, buying saffron support terrorist groups? But I mean, that was the mentality. Yes, actually. And people said that to me when I went to Washington, D.C. to do reporting. I was having a dinner with a source and I said, oh, so why don't we just give some support to Iranian farmers and let them grow saffron? And the source said, are you saying that you're um, a supporter of terrorism by saying that? And I said, no, I'm asking about what we can do with small business owners. And then they said, are you saying you're against Israel? And I said, no, I'm not saying I'm against Israel. I'm asking you how we can take one spice and get it on our plates in New York City. You have a fascinating business, actually, in that episode, uh, Rumi Spice, which is actually taking uh, people who are growing opiates or opium fields. uh, Is it Iran or Afghanistan? Afghanistan, yeah. And trying to convert those fields into saffron. One, so it's it's not necessarily going into the drug trade, but also a more profitable and hopefully culinary um, ingredient that can you know be distributed around the world. Um, was it fascinating to talk to Rumi Spice, or did they get the same kind of pushback from you know the Politico? They were really fascinating because you basically have um, what started with some ex-military people um, at Harvard Business School who said, what can we do to help Afghan farmers find a business besides um, opium to grow in their farms? So they were really great and kind of pragmatic. And um, they have gotten some pushback, but generally... 
they're less kind of known by U.S. politicians, and they're really in the thick of um, helping these farmers who are fighting against the Taliban. So, you know, because the Taliban would prefer that you grow opium versus saffron. And saffron's a very empowering thing. If you, you know, if you grow saffron, you can make more money for your family. You can make more decisions. You're less dependent on the political structure that you have in Afghanistan. So in ways that is threatening. Yeah, you know, one of the most interesting facts, I think, of that episode was uh, in Nuremberg, Germany. I think it was what the 15th century Martin Luther actually helped um, propose something that you know, watched over the purity of, of a food or ingredient. Yes. Um, saffron has this incredible history, and um, it, it was in one of the first Nuremberg laws. Um, I think Pliny had talked about it, um, the kind of keeping it from being in any way contaminated. Um, there, you know, Cleopatra bathed in it. There's just this incredible history of saffron having these powers and being kind of regarded as this wonderful spice in different cultures. So, I mean, the minutia of saffron, an ingredient that a lot of people still don't interact with in this country, um, seems so much smaller than milk. You know, you're <laughs> investigating milk, and, you know, milk just seems like such an ingrained part of the U.S. Um, should we, we actually be worried about what you're investigating, um, or should we be looking out for specific signs and maybe not be moles, but feeding you information about what we find? I would love any information you have about milk. Please send it. Um, but it is, it's surprising. You know, I went to my, the yogurt that we have every day and they haven't gotten back to me in the reporting. They haven't been very accessible. I did go to that, like, um, the people who make the milk that you buy at your supermarket at 10 o'clock at night when you're out of milk. And they've been actually accessible. They can't tell me where the cows are that, you know, make the milk that I feed my child. But they do have some tri-state, you know, idea of where it's coming from. And they are at least trying to answer questions. But it's amazing. It's a simple question. Where does my milk come from? If you just go down your milk aisle, at, look up the different brands, they're not as transparent as you would think. It's actually pretty hard reporting and very kind of gumshoe reporting just to find out where our milk comes from. So, I mean, anyone can actually start at that level, just turn around the label, you know, question not only the ingredients, but origins, um, make a phone call, you know, inquire about things. So I think that actually is helping us uh, know, not only grow to a more delicious society, but a safer one. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, when you make that call, sometimes you get a recording about um, hormones. Sometimes they just don't answer the phone. Sometimes you call the email address or you write to the email address. They'll never get back to you. So anyone can do this. It's it's funny, though, how reporting intensive it is. Excellent. Well, if you find those lost cows, obviously call Christine. Um, <laughs> but in the meantime, certainly go to foodrepublic.com and watch Food Crimes. It's, it's, it's totally fascinating and it makes you want to be part of, you know, uh, the greater good. So thank you for doing that. Thank you. Excellent. You've been listening to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.